Rainmaker FM. You're listening to The Digital Entrepreneur, the show for folks who want to discover smarter ways to create and sell profitable digital goods and services. This podcast is a production of Digital Commerce Institute, the place to be for digital entrepreneurs. For more information, go to rainmaker.fm slash digital commerce. That's rainmaker.fm slash digital commerce. Welcome to the Digital Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Sean Jackson, and I'm joined as always by the effervescent Katie Katz. Katie, how are you? Sean, you're going to have to come up with a list of words to call me because you use it, you're going to run out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, today's show, I was really inspired after uh, us going to PubCon, where we both were speaking, and really understanding the topics, how they centered them on the concepts of search and social, right? And I thought for today's show, it would be appropriate to kind of discuss those intersections between search and social, right? Because for so many people, they just do search marketing or they just do social. And yet we know that there is a a very much of a symbiotic relationship between them. And because of that, though, I do think it leads to some confusion. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, Katie, and that confusion is correlation versus causation. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So there has been much debate over the history of digital marketing as to whether social directly impacts search rankings or is, um, it just as you said, correlation versus causation, and um, whether there are other factors, whether such as how many followers you have on social media. And if your brand is bigger and your posts are more popular, you're more likely to get links, which we all know are very important to the algorithm. And so it's very hard just with any scientific experiment to segment that information out and understand what is correlating and what is causing. And, um, And so I think it's really important, though, to think that at the end of the day, does that really matter? (laughs) If we know that they're important to each other, then that's what we should consider. And we, they are both very important strategies for us to pursue. Absolutely. And I think that's a great way that you think about it is this idea that there is a correlation, but we don't know causation, but it doesn't matter because they're correlated. So Mm -hmm. you're doing one, you do the other and you have them in your mix, but there's also a third piece of this puzzle. And we will talk with a true expert about that third piece, as well as search and social. When we get back, from this short break. Stay tuned. Hey, my name is Brian Gardner, and I am the creator of StudioPress, the first premium marketplace for WordPress themes. When I created StudioPress, I could never imagine that more than 200,000 WordPress site owners would use StudioPress to build some of the most elegant and inspiring WordPress sites on the web. And I am not just talking about the numerous large companies that use it. Tens of thousands of food bloggers, podcasters, affiliate marketers, real estate agents, photographers, and many more have created some of the most compelling mobile responsive websites using StudioPress. But that is not all. To make it easy for you to create a compelling WordPress site, we have introduced StudioPress Sites, a turnkey simple method to create and grow your WordPress site. 
Studio Press Sites includes many of our most popular WordPress themes, with unique SEO tools and plugins all integrated on our high-performance, secure, and actively managed hosting infrastructure. So when you are ready to take your WordPress site to a new level without the worry or hassle of less robust solutions, then I hope you will visit studiopress.com. Over 200,000 bloggers and webmasters trust StudioPress for their WordPress site, and we work hard every day to earn it. Welcome back from the break. And Katie, will you please introduce us to Mr. Rob Gardner? Yes, we have Rob Gardner. The As you mentioned, he's the author of industry-recognized SEO playbook, Search and Social, the definitive guide to real-time content marketing. Uh, And he's also the founder of a Dallas-based firm with his namesake, where he's worked as a content strategist for many Fortune 500 companies and is a sought-after speaker for conferences such as South by Southwest and PubCon. So we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Rob, thank you for joining the show. Thank you very much. Great Great to talk with you guys again. So I am obviously very experienced with search, but I have no social capabilities whatsoever. So (laughs) I'm going to turn the first question over to Katie, because I really want to dive into this concept of the intersection of search and social. So Katie, you take the first question. Yeah. So we recently finished recording an episode of a show with Tony Wright on reputation management, where we discussed the importance of social for brand reputation and management. But Social often also gets brought up as it relates to search, hence the name of your book. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and how social media impacts a company's ability to rank in the search results. Yeah, sure. And, 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 Sean, I would make the case that you actually know a lot more about social than you're saying as, <laughs> as part of the LinkedIn uh, LinkedIn podcast that, in my mind, is one of the, even before Facebook was the first uh, business social network. It's just an identity-based network where... Um, you know, essentially, people became people became the node as opposed to to web, just websites and search. Um, so, to answer your question, Katie, I think that um, some of the aspect, you know, how is it um, how is social impacting search? Uh, the answer is they're they're almost uh, inextricable now. Uh, they're totally they're totally intertwined. This is somewhat, and I think. There's a little bit of a debate amongst some folks, but I think it's really in the way you define social. It's the way you define social in terms of how you think about it, its impact on search. Now, when we start back in the very uh, old days, early days of LinkedIn, really when the term social was becoming its own term, um, right around 2003, 2004, um, it was really sort of, in my opinion, a restatement of what we called network principles or network effects um, prior to that. And so in that sense, social was nothing really that new. It was just the way we were positioning it in terms of identity networks. But uh, um, the networks themselves, we have to distinguish, okay, there are social networks, there's Twitter, there's uh, Facebook and the usual suspects. But the deeper uh, definition as we started talking about it back then were, were really human-type touches as opposed to just machine effects. Um, and this was this were thing, you know, things like human interaction. Um, anywhere we could really um, validate the audience, validate the person on the other end, it became a stronger signal for search. And so at a, at a very high level, those types of things, as we're seeing um, integrated into the algorithm, are things like traffic, um, things like uh, 
I believe page views and other interactions that come through uh, that come through Google Analytics are having an impact on um, direct content results in natural search. And then you, if you want to carry it over, um, you have other where you know where Google has direct access into a network like Twitter. Um, they're seeing velocity of human interactivity that's really impacting the real-time search piece of things. So um, it's a broad question. I've given you a broad answer there, but um, hopefully, maybe we can start to we can start to drill into that a little bit, and hopefully, that answer is what you're um, you're asking at a high level. Well, let's go into the search side of this because sure. are you saying that social impacts search results? I mean, obviously, they do when you're searching for someone's Twitter handle, right? I mean, obviously, it's going to sure. show up. But I want to dive a little more more in that because I think you know from an SEO perspective, which is quite frankly where I got my chops, where you did. I mean, a lot of us started in the search universe and social was just another way to enhance that search presence so mm-hmm. is that still the case i mean is it a way that uh, directly influences i mean are we saying this is a ranking uh, a feature or is it more of just how people are consuming our social feeds through search so if we take just the, as as the subtitle of my book uh says the, the definitive guide to real-time content marketing i think social has the biggest impact along that real-time edge of things. So where we see um, where we see news pop up or any any type of uh, of social aspects direct from, let's say, you know, you're looking for a Twitter handle or you're looking for something like that, it definitely has its strongest impact. I think as you get deeper into other types of content, there is more of a correlation. In other words, you have a correlation of um, you know, followers, you have a, uh, a correlation of the size of network um, to whether or not it shows up in natural search. And a lot of that effect comes down to the dis- dissemination of content. There's this ebb and flow of dissemination across networks that starts to correlate um, to search results. So again, you see the sites that are, or uh, the websites that are shared the most. Again, that signal resonates faster. There's the velocity aspect, particularly around um, timely queries at the at the highest level, news queries, and at, a, at another level, um, queries with any level of recency, meaning what is the best result over the last day? What is the best result over the last week, last month, and so on? Yeah, and this was an important topic because obviously in the news recently, when we had the shooting here in Texas, which was a horrible event, and then all of a sudden people are starting to query on a search engine like Google to find more information, and the information that was being surfaced was both real-time, to your point, uh, but it was also wrong. I mean, it was it was misleading right. and wrong. So how is this going to evolve? Because I see and I think the premise of your book is spot on, which is that the intersection is in this real time existence of information as it comes up. How is it going to change, given the fact that Google was literally serving fake news to borrow a popular phrase? I, I you know, I watched that in real time as well. And it was clearly, clearly wrong. There were there were. um in in my opinion, there were there were folks that were trying to change the dialogue for political or or change the narrative for political reasons. Which again, given time, these things came out. But the the dominant narrative at the at the real time level was political. They tried to politicize it, and it was not political. Um, you know, I watched a lot of the uh, the hearings with Google, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, the Senate hearings, and um, you know. It, 
it was interesting to me. I think that uh, particularly Google's representative talked about the signal. He didn't even talk about the legalities when at, when Senator Franken was uh, questioning. He he really focused on the signal. Um, there needs to be um, one of my one of my uh, my business mentors said uh, one time that uh, the world doesn't need more uh, content creators. The world needs more editors, and uh, I think that intermediaries. Uh, and, and authoritative type sites that are that are trusted with truthful dissemination really need to have more authority in the search results, and they need to be given priority, particularly around a real time um, distribution cycle. You know that beehive of things that are going on. Now this is this becomes you know who, who is that intermediary, right? Even the intermediaries have been attacked now as being fake news, and so. We're really at a, at this um, this this incredible junction of uh, of media dissemination about what is real, and it's becoming very subjective. and uh, And I think that um, the, uh, the the engines and the networks are looking strongly at this. I don't know the the precise answer, but I do think we have to focus on authorities. I do think we need have to for- focus on authorities and those trusted networks to really. Uh, even even like a Snopes at some level, um, to really dig into the facts and start to push that uh, to the top of the results. Which, by the mm-hmm. way, authority has been a part of all search engine uh, optimization for quite some time. Katie, you had a question. Yeah, so speaking of Facebook, one of the questions that I find myself fe- fielding quite a bit is whether it's a useful platform for B2B marketers. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I... Here's here's the the basic answer to that question is the answer is yes I do think it is good for B two B marketers because your audience uh, while I do I do think that um, LinkedIn is the primary network um, the bottom line is the person you're trying to contact your audience is using Facebook and I think it is at some level should be part of the strategy for a B two B marketer and how mm-hmm. so. It, well, you're you're trying to communicate with a person, and there is a strong uh, there is a strong potential connection in Facebook to connect with that person, whether they sell rocket fuel or whether they sell digital marketing services or whatever. Um, there is a way to connect with that audience. So, do you think then that there you should alter your social media strategy for Facebook um, then from what what type of content you would post on LinkedIn? So I think from a business perspective, um, that yes, there should be some uh, some slight modification for one, so not to be du- you know duplicative of uh, what you're doing across all networks. You don't want the person who sees you in LinkedIn to also duplicate across across Facebook. But I really do think it it depends. I don't don't mean to be evasive, but it really does depend on the strategy. It depends on the type of company. And how you do it. I mean, I can tell you a, a B2B for digital marketers, Facebook is huge, right? I mean, we go to PubCon and this is B2B. We're marketing with other vendors in the space and uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. Um, if you talk about, you know, again, uh, B2B contractors, you know, it could be a defense contractor. A lot of those folks do communicate when they get at conferences and they share photos. And that's another opportunity from a B2B perspective because it is a personal thing. You are talking at the end of the day, you are communicating with human beings and they are interacting in Facebook. Therefore, 
there is a potential strategy, a potential tactic that could work. I don't know. I wouldn't sit here and advise, uh, you know, a be all end all for everyone. But I do think that um, at some level, it is something that needs to be looked at. And let's be uh, fair, too, because the intersection of search and social, I mean, one of the features that Google introduced is remarketing, right? I think that fundamentally changed the way we look at engaging with people through online advertising, because the simple fact is people can find you through a search engine, visit a page, you can then tag them, if you will, and then as they go off of your site over to a social media channel, it follows them so that you can display additional content that is related to what they looked at on your site. So really, the, Absolutely. Ad, the ad network really changed it, didn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've been, I've been using ad roll for some time and retargeting uh, with some clients. And the fact is, if those that audience, that person visits your site, you have an opportunity to retarget and, uh, and, and, and make the right message for the right, right place. So I would, I would even on the flip side, you know, um, and this is as, as controversial, it may be controversial for some people to say, oh, Facebook isn't for B2B, but I even recommend some retail and, and B2C, uh, uh, clients use LinkedIn, mm-hmm. um, mattress Mac McInvale is one of them and he's used LinkedIn to, to, to great success. In fact, he's, uh, at times he's had way more, um, reaction from a B2C audience on LinkedIn than he's had on Twitter. So, um, again, it just really depends on the network and how you use it. Right. And I do think that when you are looking at these relationships, they are symbiotic. I mean, it would be nice yes. if you just had one channel, right? You know, it's all Google. You don't worry about anything else. And the reality is there is a very symbiotic relationship to the way people discover content. And that's what Absolutely. I really come to. That's why I've always said SEO is dead is because it's about content discovery engines. And Google is a big one, but there are other ones out there. Which which leads me to this, though, because there was a recent uh, article written by the Next Web that talks about the death of the web uh, or the start of the death of the web of the open web. And what their premise was based on is the simple fact that Google, Facebook and Amazon comprise the majority of all online activity out there by huge margins. And websites, Mm -hmm. which we all know of their importance, are actually becoming less important because of this giant dominance of these three key players, which Mm -hmm. then leads to the conversation of this. If search and social is so important, why do I even need a website anymore? Great question. And I'm going to give you one reason why it is very important to have I, I am a firm believer in the open web, and I had this is you know it, it was disruptive to the existing content channels, existing entities, really even enterprise marketing channels at that point. Um, it's highly, highly disruptive. But at the end of the day, uh, you need to have uh, you need to have your own space. It, it is good to diversify. I think the best marketers have have spread themselves out a little bit, not to focus too highly in one channel where everything uh, is dependent upon that channel. I'll give you an example here. Recently, um, I've been on Google. I've had my Google ID since 2004, I think my Google email address. Um, and I was using uh, – I'd started getting invoices from uh, some of my, my people on my team, and I, and I would pay them through Google Wallet. Well, Google flagged the transaction through Google Wallet and Google Payment. And they said, because you're paying a high amount, we find this is suspicious. And without any warning, they banned my account. They said, 
you were kicked out of Google Payments. There is no getting back in, and you're toast. You cannot make Google Payments. Well, guess what? Google Payments is required to get into Google Drive and to run AdWords. Hmm. All of a sudden, I've been kicked out. I am, I am uh, part of a, a cast system, and there is no getting back in. I tried to appeal. Um, I try. I called their uh, their support line. They they. The point being, without going into the whole thing, it was it upended my world. Okay, being dependent on Google and not being able to get back in. I was rethinking the whole thing. I have to get an independent uh, payment system, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, if you become too dependent to this uh, to this, frankly, faceless these faceless entities, it can be very disconcerting. You have to build. Your own uh, your own channels. Now, I will say again, um, it is true that Google. You you have. You, I see Google, Amazon, Facebook as sort of these utilities of the web. Um, they're there. To, the The cost of trying to upend them is is near impossible at this point. And let's accept that they're here. Um, I do think that the next major. I wouldn't say the game is over yet um, for the open web because I think the next major disruptive open entity is is cryptocurrency and blockchain and i think we're talking about the open web for finances we're uh, we're still going through the internet of things and how that's all interconnected but the main utilities the google the apple facebook's of the world seem to have a handle around that but i think that when we start talking about finances it may be the last bastion of where the end user has a say from an open perspective and that that story has not been written yet. You know, and I also think too that this uh, concept of not being a digital sharecropper is especially important as you become more sophisticated. And let me explain the thinking: is that you can go in and create up a Facebook group today, right? And you can start to engage with people. And whatever features Facebook allows you to have, you can uh, again use them at your will. And certainly, they will serve ads accordingly. But let's say that this group really starts to take off, and now you want to try to ways to monetize that group, and more importantly, create up a way to help engage with them through automation that is not necessarily available through Facebook because they have no vested interest in helping you right. make more money. Then all of a sudden, where are you? I know for a fact there is a group in uh, Facebook that is huge. My wife follows it religiously, and it is an actual way to buy and sell things uh, online. It's almost like a mini classified, and it's very mm -hmm. geographic focused. And it was something that, again, it was very pithy how they you know put up $10,000 handbags, let's say. I mean, it was very, <laughs> very clever. And yet, for all of its success... They have had huge issues trying to take that experience over to a web presence because they built on Facebook first and right. did not prepare for the eventuality of moving it to their own site. So now this extremely popular group, which has lots of commerce going on, is now literally locked into the Facebook plantation. And yes. not going to be allowed to get off without both huge effort, huge time, and a huge loss, potentially. I, I, I agree. You know, Facebook started um, as an alternative. Well, not an alternative. It was a different type of network. But it was uh, part of it was the UI, right? It was, the, it was a, a singular user interface is why a lot of people came on board as opposed to this hodgepodge over at MySpace. That you know was looked like a, a graffitied wall half the time, um, 
to that point, that was the first use case. They got everybody on board, but the user experience, the user functionality is limited. And guess what? You can't build your own apps. You can't you you can't build your your own uh, added functionality into these groups. So you are stuck with it. Um, it limits your potential to monetize. It limits your potential to grow. It limits a lot of things. And I think that um, this is this limitation, and frankly, this kind of faceless. Uh, ironically, Facebook and faceless corporation as it as it is, and in, in, in the sense that you can't talk to a human being, um, could be uh, an opportunity for another network. And um, you know, they uh, there's a lot of pressure on Facebook to be all things to all people, and they simply can't do it on their own. They simply can't do it on their own. I think there is there there is an internal pressure there. And, and commerce is one aspect. You mentioned an example use case for commerce. There's certainly a use case for information dissemination within the network uh, to get that right because it's essentially created a cultural war within the United States. Um, and it's recognized as a problem by a lot of folks on, on every – from across the political spectrum and uh, even the government. And again, that, up, that pressure we're seeing on Facebook um, is going to expand in a lot of areas and I – while I think they're going to be that utility, I do think there's other options for that. Uh, that pressure is creating, you know, uh, new potential new opportunities for new social networks. And let's not forget also that because they are utilities, they will do experiments, and sometimes those experiments fail. Do you still have a Google Plus page there, Rob? I sure do. <laughs> Seen a lot of activity sure on do. it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, amazingly, actually, there's not as much activity, but. There's certainly utility. There's there's things that uh, if I need to get a message out, people get you know people hear it. But I, I get what you're saying. You know that was their big experiment, and to that point, I think it was a it was a well thought out network, but uh, one they couldn't obviously carry over to to the level of uh, of Facebook success. Um, but it could you know Facebook being it's an identity based network. They're so entrenched. There's so many hooks into us that we're not going to be leaving it anytime soon. But uh, certainly something has got to give. When that pressure is there, something will eventually give. And, you know, when Facebook sees that Instagram, for example, is the big disruptor, um, they buy Instagram, um, that's their biggest threat. You know, um, what, are, what are the commercial disruptors? What are the commercial disruptors and, and commerce disruptors that could threaten Facebook and, and you know, make people go to other places? It, it could happen. It could happen. I like the idea, you know, here's another thing. Um, if we're talking about disruption to Facebook, could blockchain also be the the, the way out um, to create uh, essentially an open social network, peer-to-peer -peer mm -hmm. network? It's a possibility uh, right now and, and certainly something to watch. Big, yeah. You know, the big players in the past have, have come down. There have been big networks to come down. They were there at one point and something else took its place and – it could happen again. Just keep watching. Yeah, and I think your point on the open web, especially related to the blockchain, because essentially it's a very slow database right now, but it's a distributed database. And as it becomes faster and as more people focus on it, beyond just the idea of cryptocurrencies, but the concept of a distributed database that is updating without a central authority, then means that maybe our social networks and our social identity becomes really ours to take with us as we see fit and not reliant upon some servers sitting there in Silicon Valley.
Absolutely. And the things that, um, you know, we give away a lot for free right now. We give Google all of our information that they're able to market back to us. And we're not, as, as individuals, we're not able to monetize that. Um, Facebook does the same thing. All these entities have data on us, and it's a, it's a one-way street. And uh, blockchain has the potential. You know, this has privacy implications. It has marketing implications and advertising implications is that we could actually get a, uh, you know, be paid to advertise to, right? Mm -hmm. um, through blockchain, if an advertiser wants to reach us directly, there is a use case that we would allow them permission-based marketing to, to talk to us, and we would get paid for it directly rather than go through an intermediary. I mean, that is the type of disruption that is out there. And um, do you think that that could cause, <laughs> could cause a, a break in the dam, you know, a, a crack in the dam between the advertising um, ecosystem and Google and Facebook? Absolutely. Would somebody would, – if, if you would tell me right now I could get paid directly and get some of those ad dollars in my own account immediately – to talk to an advertiser, you bet I'll sign up. Yeah. You bet I'll sign up. So, Katie, I think I have the perfect title for the show. You ready? Yes. The State of Searchable Social and the Open Web with Rob Gardner. How's that for a good uh, show? I love that. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you use the word searchable because in the, right, <laughs> in the writing of my book and doing interviews, I, I, it happens to me uh, all the time. <laughs> I think, I think searchable is a word. Searchable is its own word. Not only do we have a great title, we've now coined a new term for the lexicon. We have a new term. We have a new term. <laughs> hey, Rob. Quick, somebody register the domain. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's probably taken. It's probably taken. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. We truly appreciate it. Thank you both so much. Great conversation, great questions, and uh, really enjoy the show. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this short break. Hey everyone, this is Sean Jackson, the host of The Digital Entrepreneur, and I want to ask you a simple question. What is your business framework for selling digital goods online? Now, if the question perplexes you, don't worry, you are not alone. Most people don't realize that the most successful digital entrepreneurs have a framework or a general process for creating and selling their digital goods in the online space. And one of the best free resources is Digital Commerce Academy. Digital Commerce Academy combines online learning with case studies and webinars created by people who make a living selling digital goods online. And the best part is that this material is free when you register. Are you interested in joining? Well, I'll make it easy for you. If you're listening to the show on your phone and are in the continental United States, I want you to send a text message to 313131 with the keyword digits, D-I-G-I-T-S. And when you send that text message, we will send you a link to the registration form right to your phone. Are you outside the United States? Don't worry. Just send us an email to digits at rainmaker.fm. Either way, we'll send you a link to the registration form so that you can sign up for free for Digital Commerce Academy. And as a special bonus, we will also subscribe you to our newsletter when you text or email us so that you can stay informed with the latest insights from the show. And don't worry, we respect your privacy and we will not share your email or phone number and you can easily unsubscribe at any time. So if you want to start building or improving your framework for selling digital goods online, then please send a text to 313131 with the keyword digits or send us an email 
at digits at rainmaker.fm. You won't be disappointed. Welcome back from the break. So, Katie, I guess based on our interview with Rob, we have one book to recommend this time, yes? Absolutely. I think there's only one that we can recommend after this. (laughs) And that book will be Search and Social by Rob Gardner. Absolutely pick it up. You know, it's funny. He in the interview, he mentioned Mattress Mac. He actually read that book, called Rob up, had him come down to Houston. Uh, Mattress Mac is a very famous personality here in Texas because he's a very astute marketer. And if he was inspired enough to not only read it, but call up Rob, then I think that's a good testimonial on why you should read it as well. So, Katie. Absolutely. What is your parting thoughts for the show? I think that what we really need to um, all take away from it is just this inextricable tie between search, social, brand, and all of the aspects of your company's digital presence and how um, important it's going to continue to be as we go forth um, in the future. Yeah, I think you can't just rely on search or social or just your own website. They are all in a symbiotic relationship with each other. And if you don't have them all interconnected properly, then I think it's going to lead to some problems. And I think too many people are forgetting that they are three legs of the same stool, search, social, and your website. Too many times people forget that, and it does inevitably cause problems in the future. Well, that's it for Katie and I for this episode of The Digital Entrepreneur. We will catch you next time. Have a great week, everyone.